1: Dan, can you tell me what's going on in America's wastewater right now?
0: (laughs) I'm I'm going to to assume you want me to give the uh, analyst read of what's going on in the wastewater.
1: (laughs) The COVID read, not the E. coli read. Dan Diamond covers health policy and health care over at the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what's what's going on is that we are paying closer attention to the amount of COVID that is showing up in wastewater. It's, it's like a passive read. People don't have to go get tested. This is just seeing what, what is in the, the sewer system. And that has shown a spike recently in this BA2 uh, version of Omicron.
1: Yeah, this is a sub-variant, right? Yeah, sub-variant. What does that mean?
0: Well, it it means nothing good.
1: It's not just our sewer systems that are hinting at a coming surge. Caseloads are up in the U.K., in Hong Kong. Hospitalizations are on the rise there, too. And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to hear a conversation about another COVID surge. It's what Dan and I are thinking, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, forgive me that I just have terrible déjà vu. It just—I I think I've had this conversation with you four or five times over these two years, <laughs> where we're bracing for the possibility of another variant, or in this case, a subvariant coming. We hope that we're relatively protected, but it's clear in places we're not.
1: Dan says the good thing about our last COVID surge is that it touched a whole lot of people. He estimates that about forty percent of the U.S. got infected this past winter that means a lot of us may be physically prepared to fight a new subvariant armed with natural immunity even if vaccinations are fading but then i asked dan is the us government prepared for what happens now
0: short term yes long term appears to be no so let's let's take that apart the nation has stocked up on a lot of different tests and treatments that we we just didn't have earlier in the pandemic but the U.S. government is running out of money. This has been a story that I've been following, my colleagues have been following. So there, there are very fragile points in the U.S. response. And if we don't get funding soon, those fragile points will widen and leave us significantly underprepared later this year.
1: Today on the show, the pandemic is not over. Why do some politicians wanna pretend like it is? I'm Mary Harris. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's roll back the clock and talk about how we got here. Because just a few weeks ago, President Biden was giving the State of the Union and in-it He was touting his 96-page plan to fight COVID. Tonight,
0: I say that we never will just accept living with COVID-19. We'll continue to combat the virus as we do other diseases. And because this virus mutates and spreads, we have to stay on guard. The White House plan was seen by, by folks I talked to as the right gesture in the right direction, but still lacking specifics and lacking funding. And some of those specifics and funding are still waiting to be colored in. Some of that would be around, how do we fight long COVID? The White House plan talked briefly about this. There is a lot more research that likely needs to be done for people who are dealing with long-lasting symptoms from the virus. There's been a lot of focus, too, on ventilation in private buildings and in schools. How can we make that better? The White House plan got somewhat to that, But there is a hope that we would go even further than what President Biden said in the State of the Union.
1: So what happened when the White House and Congress tried to work together to get some kind of funding? Like originally, the COVID aid was supposed to be part of a Ukraine aid package.
0: Starting a few weeks ago, the White House began amping up its calls for aid specifically to fund the COVID response. There are folks in Congress who say that started too late, that they were already moving ahead on a funding package. The White House needed to be louder, needed to be earlier, needed to be more specific on what had been spent. Republicans specifically dove in and said, look, we've spent trillions of dollars over these past few years. Why weren't we better prepared for Omicron? Where were the tests that we needed? Where did all the money go for these supplies? Why should we set aside additional money now? So that has been a major sticking point.
1: They wanted accountability before they ponied up more.
0: Yes. And some Democrats, too. This was not exclusively a Republican issue, though the Republicans were loudest about it. The White House has had some trouble answering some of those questions. The Democrats in Congress said, OK, if we can't set aside new money, maybe there's a way to repurpose the funding that has already been committed but not spent. So House Democrats came up with a plan where they were just going to take money that had already been pledged to states and use that now for these new funding needs, buying more antivirals, buying more vaccines.
1: Does that mean taking money away from the states?
0: That's exactly what it means. Money that had been pledged to the states but not spent. It's like, Mary, me saying, here's $100 for Christmas. And then it turns out you haven't spent that money. And I say, actually, I need I need that money back. Um, I need, you know, $50 of that back because I realized I need to cover my electric bill this month.
1: This does not sound like a popular idea.
0: It was not, uh, <laughs> for understandable reasons. And the states revolted. The Democrats in Congress, the rank and file members felt like they didn't have transparency on this. A lot of them who were worried about their reelection campaigns this year spoke up. So, facing this revolt, Democrats said, you know, we're just going to pull this COVID funding deal out of the Ukraine package. We'll deal with it later. Well, now it's later, and it's not clear what the path is to passage. Republicans remain dug in, they still want accountability. Democrats now say they want even more money.
1: Yeah, it's worth noting here that Republican senators recently voted to declare the pandemic over. So, politically, people are in very different places here
0: republicans say they want to move back to normal whatever whatever normal means i mean i think normal after 2 years of a pandemic is is naturally going to be different than life was before that pandemic things have changed a lot in 2 years but it's not just republicans who are drawing a line over how interested they are in funding covid or or fighting the pandemic Earlier today, I, I went looking for a PCR test because I've been fighting a cold the past few days. And I just wanted to rule out, you know, that it's, it's not COVID. And I went to the only COVID center I could find in DC. There used to be testing a few blocks from my house. That doesn't exist anymore. So I had to go across town to get a PCR test. And I walked in Mary and this place, which provides masks and vaccines and tests, totally empty. I was the only person there. Wow. And it's not that the virus has totally gone away. I mean, we know people are getting sick. Certainly in D.C., there have been reports of Congress members, the uh, husband of of Vice President Kamala Harris. The virus is still circulating. But we have increasingly decided as a society to leave it in the rearview mirror. And that doesn't mean we need to be crowding these centers. But there are people who could get boosted and aren't. There are people who could be getting tested that aren't. And it, it just feels that folks are just done they're they're tired of this but it makes it that much harder on Capitol Hill to fight for what seems like yesterday's battle over and over again.
1: My understanding is that the White House wanted like 22.5 billion and they couldn't get that even. they were looking at 15 billion in this package that didn't end up being attached to the Ukraine aid. Is that right?
0: Part right. The White House originally wanted even more than that. They had done their own internal calculations. I was talking to folks a few weeks ago who said we're thinking this might be 80 billion, 85 billion. So it has been steadily ratcheted down from folks in private conversations with reporters saying maybe more than 80 billion, to then publicly saying, well, maybe more than 30 billion to 22 billion. Now this $15 billion deal. We may see it bounce back up, just given that they've pulled this COVID money out separately. And it appears More money may be needed if there are going to be more cases coming. But $15 billion is not very much in the scheme of Washington. Yes, it's tons and tons of money. But in the scheme of trillions of dollars being spent these past few years on COVID, $15 billion is a relative pittance. But that's also why Republicans say, well, if you want any more money, we need to know what happened to the money already spent.
1: Do you think that's a legitimate ask?
0: Yes. The idea that there should be some accountability before more money is set aside, just to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, as a reporter, I can understand that. At the same time, $15 billion for needed vaccine investments, for more tests and treatments, it's so much smaller than these previous requests that it would seem to be something, even if you're looking for more accountability— an area where you should be able to find that funding just to move forward with emergency needs.
1: So funding's already beginning to run out, right? Like you mentioned how you couldn't even find a COVID testing site in D.C. really. I mean, you found one eventually, but it was pretty empty. What are the changes that people are going to see in the next few weeks in terms of what kind of COVID care they can access and what they can't?
0: Yeah, some of that pullback of availability of tests and centers is because there's been so much less demand and you don't need to staff big centers if people aren't showing up. And one of the biggest differences, Mary, I showed up to get this PCR test. It was the first time I've self-administered the entire time. There was no one standing behind a booth. You self-administer the test and you drop it off, which which is fine. It reminded me kind of of doing an at-home test.
1: Oh, wow. So they really, they're like, we're going to whittle down the staff here. <laughs> it's going to be DIY.
0: Yeah. But the immediate fallout. The first program that appears likely to lose money is a program for uninsured Americans that provided reimbursement for testing and treatment. So if you're uninsured, you show up to your doctor and you say, hey, I need a COVID test or I need this COVID treatment. The doctor would be able to submit that claim and and get it covered. If you're uninsured, you might have to start paying now for testing and, and treatment if that program goes away. In a few weeks, that program also will stop covering vaccines for the uninsured, too. Another area of risk is the monoclonal antibodies, that we are running out of monoclonal antibodies. They are being used up, uh, that we would need to order more, and it's the kind of thing where you can't you know, order it on Friday and expect them to be shipped on Monday. This is not, this is not an Amazon book. This is something that needs to be manufactured over time, and companies aren't going to do it unless they have the pre-order. And then longer term, the issue of vaccines. To get vaccines in the fall and make sure that we have enough doses, if everyone, it turns out, might need a fourth shot, we need to start placing those orders now, White House officials say. And if we're not placing those orders, other countries are going to step in front of us in line, place orders, and we'll be waiting that much longer. Even if we do get money available, say in May or June, other countries will have already ordered. Their next vaccine doses, so we'll be waiting for those orders to be filled before the US order gets completed.
1: It's interesting because listening to you, it sounds like you know, the first people to be impacted will be the uninsured, who often get the short end of the stick. And then with the monoclonal antibodies, people who are sick and need them, or or people who are immunocompromised and maybe need monoclonal antibodies prophylactically they'll be impacted. And then eventually everyone else will. And so it's like this delay where we're going to be able to see what's coming potentially if the funding doesn't come through. But it won't actually be impacting people for a little while. And so it might be easy to set aside.
0: You put that brilliantly. Um, I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way. But yes, the people who are most at risk, who are already on the fringes because they have health insurance, they don't have means, they will be the first ones to feel the impact of this. And then eventually, if there's no funding, that will spread more and more to the rest of us.
1: At the same time COVID funding has gotten held up, there's a new COVID coordinator in the White House. When we get back, will that make any difference? While the Biden administration has been fighting to win congressional support for additional pandemic funding, the COVID-19 coordinator over at the White House, a guy named Jeff Zients, he announced his departure. So I asked Dan Diamond, did this timing seem weird to
0: him? Well, yes and no. I was surprised because it was early in the morning and my phone started blowing up uh, and I I had been working on... (laughs) <laughs> I'd been working on a daylight saving time story, which which I had begged for because I had wanted just a break from COVID for like a day. I just wanted like a sunny, <laughs> a sunny story after two years of being the grim guy who had to write about COVID and go on slate podcasts and talk about all these horrible things. So, so Jeff Zients and the other folks working on the COVID response have been grinding away in the White House for over a year. Right now is about as good an off-ramp as you're gonna find. The case numbers are so low in comparison to where they were. There are plans that are in place that if funding comes through, the White House feels confident we'll be in a better position to fight COVID in the future. And the the baton is ready to be handed off. It is interesting who they tapped in Ashish ja, well-known figure for sure, someone who is an incredible communicator, but doesn't have the management and government experience of a Jeff Zients and to some extent, a Debbie Birx uh, before uh, Zions, back in the Trump administration. Dr. Jaws coming in outside of government. He's a celebrity in some respects. He's always on TV.
1: Yeah, he's a regular on cable news.
0: Yeah, and, and on all cable news, not just MSNBC and CNN, but he'll go on Fox and Newsmax. He'll, he'll speak to every audience. <laughs> Doctor, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Can you make head or tail of what the government is talking about? Yeah, so we have different agencies that have not been on the same page, John. And I think that part has been a real problem. But the role of COVID coordinator is more than being a spokesperson. It's getting into the nitty gritty and making recommendations to the president. So it's it's a very big job that he is going to be assuming.
1: I mean, I heard one take that was, it was interesting that Dr. Jaw was being hired because it might keep someone who could be critical a little bit quiet. I don't know if you'd agree with that.
0: Yeah, I don't agree. Um, I think Dr. Jha had been critical at times of the White House. I, I think I've quoted him being critical. But increasingly, Dr. Jha was more in line with the White House than opposed. I think I think what it does do, Mary, is it brings one of the most effective COVID communicators within the House. And he has the credibility of being a physician, which Jeff Zients, a, a management guru, but no public health expertise before stepping into his role. So that that gives Dr. Ja a card to play when he is speaking to multiple audiences.
1: Yeah, I read that Congress people talked about how Jeff Zients would give them his phone number, like they could call at any point and get information from him or explain what their state was experiencing. And as I think about this COVID funding that stalled, I kind of wonder how Dr. Jha fits in now. Like, is his number one job to go to Capitol Hill and try to get the money he needs to do what he thinks needs to be done?
0: I've been wondering that, too. I think it depends when he steps into his job, which is going to be in the coming weeks. It's not right away. Will the funding issue already be taken care of? If Congress goes ahead, secures a funding package that gets us through the next number of months, then Dr. Jha maybe can focus more on just communicating these ebbs and flows of COVID and, and explaining to Americans how to deal with the likely surge that we will see after the the trough that we're in right now. But if this stalemate continues, then yes, Dr. Ja, who's never been in government, uh, will have to take the same skills that he's used in academia trying to argue, you know, to hire a professor. <laughs> now you've got to do it on the biggest stage, arguing with lawmakers why they need to give you billions of dollars in funding. Um, and, and Asa Hutchinson, who I spoke to, the governor of Arkansas, a Republican, leads the National Governors Association, he said Jeff Science was really good. He gave out his cell phone, was responsive at any moment uh, of any day, on the weekend, at night, in helping secure supplies for his state. That is a management challenge. That is a production and process challenge. When you're a talking head, You don't have to worry about such things. So I think Dr. Jha remains to be seen whether Dr. Jha is able to handle the management side of the equation.
1: Hmm. I kind of wonder part of what legislators are talking about now is forming a COVID-19 commission, like the 9-11 commission, to look at the government response. And it would be bipartisan, hopefully. Do you think that's A chance to course correct, too, to get people from both sides of the aisle all on one page here in a way that might make these funding discussions go smoother
0: in the future. Maybe, but I I am pessimistic. I, I think the genie is out of the bottle in some ways with COVID. It has been so politicized the past two years. It shows up in all of the polling in how Americans view the response, the role of someone like Dr. Fauci. I think where there is agreement is this crisis was horrible for our country, so how do we make sure it does not happen again? But both Democrats and Republicans feel pretty aggrieved about the other side. And I think, Mary, that we are in an election year, a midterm election year, you will see increasingly Congress members trying to point the finger at the other party in hopes of winning in November.
1: Dan Diamond, I am always super grateful for your reporting. Thank you.
0: Mary, I I really did just want to be the Daylight Saving Time reporter this month. I was looking forward to having a happy thing to talk about. <laughs> COVID just keeps sucking me back in.
1: Dan Diamond works at The Washington Post as a national reporter, investigating health politics and policy. And that's our show. Before I jump off the line here, I just wanted to tell you that Slate is currently having a sale. We are offering our Slate Plus membership at 25% off for the first year. If you've been listening to our coverage, you know how deep we go. On the pandemic, sure, but also on Ukraine, we're giving you live updates on what's happening with the Supreme Court nomination, the midterms, everything you need to know. It's right here on the show. And we are ready to do all of this because of support from listeners like you. So join us. When you do, you get all kinds of great benefits like ad-free listening to this podcast and every other podcast in the Slate Network, or member-exclusive segments on shows like Amicus and Political Gabfest. You'll also get unlimited reading at Slate.com. So help us keep What Next and Slate going by signing up for Slate Plus at Slate.com slash What Plus. Again, it is 25% off your first year for a limited time. So sign up now at slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad. We get amazing support these days from Laura Spencer and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back in this feed bright and early tomorrow morning. See you then.